Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is the seventh week of our series, Beyond the Boat. This message comes from Matthew, starting in chapter 15, verse 32, through chapter 16, verse 12. If you'd like to take notes, there's a link for that in the show notes. Thanks for joining us, and without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. Well, we're going to continue in our study of Matthew in just a minute, but even as we get there, let me just take a a moment to just... You know, say I know last week we kind of had a, a tougher passage to look at and we kind of dug a little deeper and we're going to find we're going to do some of the same this week. And, and last week and uh, this week we're going to talk about some rules of interpreting the Bible. And, and I wanted to just even take a moment to kind of explain some of my thinking here. Um, you know, what I want you to see is even when we come to a passage, it's like, oh, this is a little harder to see and understand. Uh, you don't have to be a pastor or a seminary student to get this. And, and so what we're doing is we're going to say, well, here's these rules of interpreting the Bible, and, and here's how I got it. And basically we're saying, well, here's this tool, and here's how I've used this tool, and, and I want you to know that you can have this tool too. I mean, these ideas are things that, that any of us can understand, any of us can apply. And, uh, and so I'm trying to model something. I, I don't want you just to look at this and to say, well, well, Pastor Mike saw this, I never would have saw it, I never could have seen it. I want you to be able to study it and to say, oh, I see how he got that, and, and I see how I can get it, and so that I, I can learn to become a student of God's word. I can learn to be able to, and again, it takes some practice to learn these tools, but they're, they're all usable. They're all accessible, and, uh, and I hope that, that you're encouraged that my, my goal isn't necessarily just to teach, but it's also to model the process of how you can understand these things in your own study as well. And so what we're looking at this morning is we're looking at uh, Matthew, a long, long passage. It's starting in Matthew 15, verse 32. And then we're going to go through the uh, chapter 16, verse 12. So it's a longer passage. And we're going to see it all ties together. And so if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to open it up. I'd encourage you to keep it open throughout our time. Uh, we have a... Can we have some light, lights? Oh, can we have some lights so that people can read the Bible? So... So, yeah, so, so they're asking so that they can actually read. It's a little more house lights. Thank you. And um, so, let's, um, so let's start by reading the passage that we're going to look at. So Matthew chapter uh, 15, starting in verse 32. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have had nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint in the way. And the disciples said to him, where are they to get enough bread in in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 4,000 men, beside the women and the children. And then after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat, and they went into the region of Magdan. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to him to test him and asked him to show a sign from heaven. And he answered them, "When uh, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. And you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. And even an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And so he left them and departed. And when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. 
And so Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And, and they discussed it amongst themselves saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus said, Jesus aware of this said, oh you have little faith, why are you discussing amongst yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive, do you not remember the five loaves and the 5,000 and how many baskets were gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then they understood that he did not tell them to be aware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. May God bless the reading of his word. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege that we do have to be here this morning. Father, to worship, to, to, to just enjoy you, to enjoy community together. And Father, now to be able to dive into your word. I thank you for the things that you are teaching me. And Father, for the way that your, your spirit is allowing me and helping me to understand what your word says. And I pray now that you would speak through me and in spite of me. We pray, even as we just have talked, that, that you would send your spirit down. Father, to speak through your word, Father, to, to speak to each one of our hearts, to hear and understand and to apply, to be encouraged, to be challenged by what you may have for us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you've been at our church for the last few months and you've been with us through our studies of this middle part of the Gospel of Matthew, or even if you've read the Gospel of Matthew in the middle sections here on your own, and you come to this story at the end of chapter 15, you might have a sense of deja vu. And there's a reason behind that, and that is because we read at the end of 15 here this story about him multiplying bread and feeding 4,000 people, and it's incredibly similar to a story at verses 13 through 21 of Matthew 14 where he multiplied bread and fed a crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children. Now, I have a confession here to make. Uh, back in the spring, I was working on this, and I will take some time, and I will kind of outline, here's the section that I'm looking at, and what's, what messages I'm going to do. And as I was working on this part of Matthew, um, I came to this section, and, and right away I'm like, okay, this is just a repeat of what he just did the chapter before. And so I'm just going to skip it. Um, you know, it's kind of a repeat of the miracle that he's done, same point, just kind of going to the next thing. But I tell you, as I thought about it, and as I prayed about it, God began to convict me. You know, we give you certain rules for interpreting the Bible, and so we've been talking about that, and, and God began to convict me, okay, well, one of those rules that you talk about, and other people need to, to, to you know, you say other people need to pay attention to, is this rule that the Bible is very precise in the way that it's written. It's God's perfect and complete message to men. And, and one of the ideas with that is that, okay, if it's really precise, that means that everything has a purpose. And, and God convicted me, if this is really the case, then this would mean this passage here in Matthew 15 isn't just a superfluous repeat of what was said in Matthew 14. You know, it isn't that Jesus just did the same thing and we can skip it and it wasn't like, oh, if you missed it the first time, here's a repeat because it's important. No, if indeed the Bible is incredibly precise that it's God's message that means that God put it here for a reason, that it might be related to chapter 14, but it's a different message, it's a different principle. And, um, and some people might think, well, maybe just Jesus did, did it, you know, it's just Matthew's recording what he did. Well, no, that's not the case because the Bible tells us that Jesus did thousands of miracles that aren't recorded in the Gospels. And so it's not only that Jesus chose to do this miracle in a very close time state to the other one, but again, God ordained that it be written, and for a reason. 
And so he convicted me, okay, if it was important enough for God to put it in there because it has a point, well, then it's kind of ignorant and arrogant of me to think that I can just skip it because there's nothing else there. So I you know, committed, okay, I'm gonna do this, and, and kind of went into the study with a little bit of nervousness because I wasn't sure what I would find. And here's the beautiful thing. The Bible is very precise. It is written, and the way it's written, it's God's perfect and complete, perfect and complete message and that means that there's always something there. And as I've kind of studied it, looked at it, that's what I've seen, is that there's something there. There's a beauty that God is, is teaching um, that is distinct from the first one. Now, right off the bat, though, we might look at this and say, how do we understand? Because it is surprising that you have two miracles within you know, two chapters, really you know, 14 to 15, that are almost exactly the same. And not only that, they're recorded here and then likewise Mark right next to each other, which suggests that they were probably done within a brief period of time of each other. So most would say they were probably done no more than a matter of weeks in between each other. And so you say, okay, why is Jesus doing these two miracles? Why one back to back? And, and to understand what, why he did it, what he's teaching, let's go to another rule of interpreting the Bible. This is one we looked at last week, is that the passages that seem difficult or out of place are God's way of highlighting. Now applied here, you have two passages that are, that are almost exactly the same, except there's a big difference in the two accounts. And what I want you to see is the difference is the thing that's out of place. They're, they're, they're almost exactly the same, there's a huge difference, and that's the part that God's highlighting. That's the part that he wants to notice. That's the core of, of the meaning we're gonna see here. So what is that difference? Let's, let me show it to you. Okay, in Matthew 14, you have Jesus has, has uh, retreated to a remote place. It's a place where the people that would come there, there was no access for food. And yet, in spite of this, we're told that a huge crowd, some 5,000 men plus women and children, followed him, and while he's there, he's healing them, he's teaching them, and, and after they're there, look what happens. We read in Matthew 14, verse 15, now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the village to buy food for themselves. Now compare that story to Matthew 15. Like the first story, Jesus has, re- has gone to a desolate place, a place that is you know, away from any city where people couldn't find food. But in spite of that, there's a large crowd, some 4,000 men plus women and children that have followed him. He's teaching, he's healing, and, and after three days, we're then told in, in, uh, in verse 32 of Matthew 15, then Jesus called his disciples to them and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Now, do you see the difference? The big difference here is in the first story, the disciples come to Jesus at the end of the first day and they say, hey, Jesus, we see this need. We see this concern. You know, you've got to send people away. They, there's no food to eat here. In this story, the disciples don't ever mention the problem to Jesus. In fact, it's not the first day. It's now three days, and they've not eaten. And finally, Jesus comes and says, you know, the problem is that I can't send them home because they're going to faint on the way. They're so hungry. And so there's a big problem. And so it immediately raises a significant question. And I think it's the question that's at the heart of this passage. And this key question is this. Why didn't the disciples bring this obvious need to Jesus? Clearly, they're aware of the need. Um, before, after one day, they were aware of the need. 
And, and they go to Jesus and they encourage him to send people home. And the result was what? They saw Jesus do this amazing miracle so that he took a few small loaves and a few fish, fed you know, 5,000 men and probably over 10,000 people with women and children. But here, not only a few weeks later, they find themselves in almost the exact same situation, but instead of bringing the need to Jesus like they did before, they not only ignore it, they avoid it. Where they're going three days and people are you know, starving, hungry. And, and, and I think they were aware because even then, you know, when finally Jesus brings it to them and, and then he asks them, well, how many loaves do you have? And right away they say seven and small fish. And I think they're remembering what happened and they're like, well, just in case we should take stock of what we had. And so they're anticipating this. But, but let me ask you this. When you look at this obvious similarity between this situation and what they had just faced a few weeks earlier, doesn't it seem strange that they don't bring it up? You know, why, why, why don't they believe that Jesus could do a miracle again? Wouldn't you think that they would say, hey, Jesus just did this? And Now I want to tell you, throughout the story, we might be tempted to think that the disciples are kind of slow or hard-headed. Uh, they don't get it. In, in... Now before you give into that temptation of thinking that about them, I want to take a moment and let God's word shine on our own lives. All right, okay, let's think about our own lives. How many of us would say that we've seen God work in some miraculous way in our lives? Yeah, how many of us would say there's been a time that we had this big crisis and we brought it to God and we didn't know what happened and then we saw God answer prayer and he met the need in a remarkable way. We can say that, right? All right, all of us would say, yeah, that's part of my story. But how many of us then, after experiencing God's provision in this remarkable way in our lives, then face a new crisis? And in that new crisis, we suddenly become desperate. We become fearful. God, why did you let me get into this? God, are you going to meet my need? We're suddenly overwhelmed with this. We don't know if we can rely on God. And you look at it and you say, wait a second. We, we saw God work before, but we don't come back to faith. Suddenly we're overwhelmed and we're, we just know the crisis is bigger than us. And is God really reliable? And what I want you to see is that we do the same thing the disciples did. Now here's part of the beautiful part, is when we see in them, we can't criticize them from being too hard, that's our story, that's, we're slow too. But the beautiful thing is that we also see God's patience and grace and, and you know, that he, that he loves them even though that they're slow to learn. And so God is with us as well. If we struggle, this isn't a statement of, you know, and why didn't you guys learn? What's wrong with you guys? No, it's Jesus saying, okay, let me teach you. He's patient as he is with us. But we still, in trying to understand this, come back to this question, why didn't the disciples bring this obvious need to Jesus? They brought it to him before. Now, you know, day, days later, they're literally not only bringing it, they're avoiding it. And I think when you look at the passage and you contrast these two stories, I think a lot of it had to do with their understanding of what God's role was, what their role was, and a fear about what God might call them to do a fear about their role, a misunderstanding about that. Well, let's go, let's go back and see this. Let's go back to the miracle in Matthew 14. In Matthew 14, verse 15, we read a moment ago and we're told that Jesus is there, there's a big crowd, Jesus is healing them, he's working in a powerful way. And then we're told that in that evening, uh, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, the day is now over, send the crowds away to go into the village to buy food for themselves. And so they come to Jesus, they make him aware of the need, they suggest that he sends people away, you know, here's the solution, and, um, and Jesus gives them a response they did not expect. 
And so Jesus looks at them and he says, no, uh, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they did not expect that. I don't think they liked that. You know, then they're like, wait, wait a second, Jesus. Um, you know, that's not the idea here. And I think we see something in them, which is true of us, is we want a, a passive faith. You know, what we want to be able to do is to come to God and say, here's my problem. God, I'm going to tell you about my problem, and I'm just going to sit back, and I'm going to wait for you to meet the problem. I'm going to wait for you to meet the need. That's what Jesus had been doing all day with the sick. You know, these people are coming and saying, yeah, I'm sick. And Jesus said, okay, boom, you're healed, and walk away. And, and that's all we do is we just bring the need and then sit back and wait for God to work. And that's kind of what we want. That's what the disciples expected. I think a lot of times that's what we expected. You know, they're coming, Jesus, the people are hungry. Either you meet the need and you just do it or you send them away, you're not gonna meet the need. But our expectation is when we bring the concerns that we just, you know, we bring, God, here's spiritual concern for our country. God, we're doing this. I'm gonna, my job is just to bring the need and you do it. God, I've, I've got a problem in my marriage. I'm just gonna bring the need and you do it. I, I want you to just fix it. See, we think that our role is done, but what do we see here? They bring the need, and they think, okay, God, you do the miracle, and what does Jesus do? He turns at them and says, no, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. He turns around and says, okay, you want a passive faith. I'm going to call you to have faith, but it's not a passive faith. It's an active faith. It's one that requires you to also be a part of the solution. I want you to act. Again, they wanted Jesus to take care of it, and he says, no, you know, you, know, you take care of it. And, and, and their response is, are you kidding me? I mean, you know, 10,000 people here. We just have a couple pita bread and a couple fish. There's no way in the world we can do that. But what did we see happen? They brought the little bit that they had, and Jesus took that little bit and he multiplied it so that it met the need. We're told in Matthew 14, they, he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left. That was more than enough. Now here's the principle. We will pray and ask God to work, but God often calls us to step out and be part of his plan to meet the need. We would like to have a passive faith where I just prayed, you do it, I sit back and watch. But he often calls us to an active faith, to say, okay, I'm gonna do it, but you have to be a part of it. And so, God, I want you to pray for me, and my, here's my unsafe friend, my unsafe family member, God, you save them, I bring them to you, you do it. He says, no, I want you to witness. God, God, I'm concerned about our country, and you know, I want you to be a part of that. I'll work, but you, know, you need to be involved. You need to be vote. You need to be involved in things. You need to maybe be in a ministry where it's meeting some of those practical needs that you're concerned about. Uh, you know, we need Christians to serve on school boards and things that are part of the solution. God, I need you to show up and do my marriage. Well, no, you've got to go to counseling. You've got to be a part of it. Now, here's the scary part. Just as Jesus called his disciples to feed the crowd when they only had a few loaves of bread, God often calls us to step into needs that are way bigger than our ability and our provision. That he'll often call us to do something that it's an overwhelming need and all we have is an underwhelming supply. And he promises if you bring your underwhelming supply, I'm gonna multiply it to meet the need. Now, when you look at the disciples, the question is why did they avoid bringing this need to Jesus? And I think one of the key reasons, I think the key reason, is that they, they're thinking, hey, we did this last time, and we said, Jesus, you take care of this. And they turned and said, well, no, you do it. And, and they called us to an act of faith, and we don't want him to turn to us again. 
And what we tend to do is we avoid situations that require faith out of fear. You know, we, we're afraid that if, you know, God, if I bring this to you, you're going to ask me to play a part, and I don't want to play a part. I just want to bring it to you and let you do it. And, and I don't want to do something where you tell me that I have a role here. Now, when you think about this, you know, Jesus said, you know, you do this, we only have a couple things, and what did, you know, a couple loaves and fish, and Jesus said, okay, take the little pit, and he multiplied it to meet the need. And what we need to realize is that in our lives too, we can sit there, and we've seen God work before, we've seen God do amazing things, but we have these needs, we have these concerns, and, and we want to bring them to God, and we want him to work, but we don't really want to be involved. You know, we, God, you don't understand the need and the concern, and and he says, okay, what's your part? We just want to pray, expect him to do a miracle. And his response to us is, no, you do it. And if you, it's, we can't, I know, but just take your little frozen fish and work into it and I will multiply it. But the problem is that we're so intimidated by the need that we're afraid to step into it because all we know is we don't have what it takes. But we might look at that and say, well, it's, it's humility and I don't know what it has. See, it's not a ladder, la- matter of lack of faith in ourselves. We are overwhelmed. It's more than what we have. It's a lack of faith in God. Because what we're saying is, here's my limitations and God could never take the little bit that I have and multiply it. God's not big enough to overcome my weakness. And he says, no, I want to put you in a situation where you have a faithfulness that's driven by faith. You see, if God ever said, okay, feed the people and you have enough stuff, I wouldn't have to have faith. I'd become arrogant. I'd become self-reliant. And he says, no, I want to put you in a place where, where it requires more than you have because then you have to rely on me. See, we live in a world where their people are spiritually hungry. They're famished. That's, that's the imagery here of the food. That's what he's telling us here. And God calls us to be his representatives. He calls us to move into the world and to bring a message of hope, of spiritual food to a world that desperately needs it. And we can either ignore that because we say, well, I don't have what it takes and we're intimidated by it. Or we can say, okay, I'm gonna step into it and I'm overwhelmed and I'm scared to death. But you know what? God's gonna multiply what I have. And so we've gotta say, how do we faithfully move into God's calling? Not confident in ourselves, but confident in him. Let me even take some just practical little things in how we do that. All right, how about parents, grandparents? You know, we're concerned about our kids. We're trying to raise our kids. We're trying to say, how do I raise my kids well in the midst of a spiritually hostile world? We're dealing with, you know, pressures of depression and social media and gender confusion and all these things. And we pray, should you pray? Yeah. But you also have a role. And the fact is, you do your part and then you pray for God to multiply what you do. And what is our part? I think of Deuteronomy 6. And it tells us, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk upon them when you sit at home at your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. They, you shall be a sign to them, on, a sign on your do- hand and they shall be as uh, frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And basically saying, live it in life. So that you're walking through and you're trying to say, how do I teach spiritual truths to my kids? When I get up, when I walk through the day, when we talk, how did school go? How do I bring spiritual truths? You should live it in such a way that it's like it's written on your head. It's written on your, fo- you know, it's not that it's literally done that, but it's figuratively. It's, it's like right here. People see it. Their kids can't miss it. Now, the fact of the matter is, is I don't have what it takes. Okay, well, do what you have. 
Because of the fact of the if you are a perfect parent without God's grace, you would still fail. If you're an imperfect parent with God's grace, that's more than enough. And so do what you have. Step into it and say, how do I learn to do this more effectively? And then pray for God to work in the hearts of your kids or your grandkids. Pray for him to do the miracle. Or how about marriage? You know, people, God, I pray for work in my marriage. Many of us would raise your hand. You know, you don't do that. But, you know, but we think, of, and all, you know what the problem is that a lot of times that's a passive prayer. And what we do, God, I want you to work on my marriage and I want you to know the problem is my spouse. Change them. You know, I brought it to you. Let me sit back and do the miracle. You know, I'm just waiting to watch you. And um, now the problem is that God calls us to an act of faith. The Bible never teaches me how to change someone else. The Bible teaches me how to take God's word and to apply it to my own life and let God change me. And somebody might say, but you don't understand. I'm not the problem. My spouse is the problem. Okay, well, are they 100% of the problem? Well, not 100%. They're 95% of the problem. All right, I'll even take your argument. If they're 95% of the problem, it might be more, but just let's go there, okay? Even if that's true, God wants you to take responsibility for your 5%. He calls you to say, okay, what is your 5%? And, and how do you respond to what your spouse is doing? That's his point in, in uh, Jesus' point in John or Matthew 7. You know, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you'll be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And he's basically saying, you know, even if it's at 5%, focus there, focus on the log in your own eye, focus on what you're looking at. You can't change your spouse. Listen, at the end of the day, only the Holy Spirit can change your spouse. That's a principle that I continue to learn in relationships. Only the Holy Spirit can change another person. I would like to do the Holy, work of the Holy Spirit in another person's life, but I found that the Holy Spirit is a much better Holy Spirit than I am. And so me trying to do the work of the Holy Spirit is foolish. And what, what God's called me to do is to say, okay, let me see God's work in my life. What's, God, I'm praying for you to work. The act of faith is, here's how I'm surrendering my life. And you know what happens? If you let God work in your life and change even that 5%, a lot of times that's what God will use to then be the motivation to change your spouse. So start there. Or one more example, we talk even about evangelism. We, how many of us pray for a lost, unbel unbelieving friend, unbelieving family member, and God, save them, bring somebody in their life. And again, what does the Bible say? Well, yeah, you have a part. You go feed them. Well, I can't. I don't know how. Well, look what it says in, in Romans. How will they then call on him whom they not believed? And how will they uh, believe in one whom they not heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? It's not the preacher. It's like just telling, sharing. Um, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? It is written, how beautiful are those who are feed on who preach the good news. And all of us are sent. That's the whole idea. All of us are called to do that. And God says, can you have people in your life that you're concerned about? You're a part of that. And you're like, but I don't know what to say. I don't know what to share. I don't, what, what if they ask a hard question? Just bring your couple of loaves and your couple of fish and let God multiply it. At the end of the day, God does the miracle. God changes the life, but he uses the faithfulness of his people. We've got to bring a couple of loaves for him to multiply it. But even in this, we often avoid it. We're afraid, but God, if I pray for an unbeliever, you might call me to do something. So we avoid even praying. And then we don't ask and then we don't experience the blessing. No, we need to re realize that God calls us to this act of faith that calls us to an uncomfortable place, but a good place. 
Now, we might be tempted to stop here and say, okay, well, that's the end of that story, and so what's... But I want you to see, although it seems to stop, as we look at chapter 16, especially verses 9 through 11, Jesus explicitly says, no, the point that I'm trying to teach here is, is all about the miracles that I just did. So we've got to continue on and say, okay, what is the point? This is part of what he's teaching here about why this is here a second time. And so we look at verses one through four, and we're going to see here it's about, about the doubt and rejection of, of cultural leaders. In verse one of chapter 16, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to test him, and they asked him to show him a sign from heaven. And he answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be a stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the, uh, the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah. And he left them and departed. Now here what you have is you have these religious leaders come with the ostensible request for a sign that would give evidence of God's power. And on face value, that seems to be a reasonable question. Hey, you're claiming to be the Messiah. You're claiming to be from God. Well, give us a sign to give us evidence so that we have reason to believe your claims. Now, that seems reasonable except for a really big thing. And that is, he's been doing hundreds of signs. We just read the verses before. He's been healing all these people. He just took a few loaves of bread and fed thousands of people, multiplied. That's a pretty significant sign, right? That's, you know, you look at it and say, you want a sign? What about that? What about these people that are walking that were healed? You know, that, you know, and, and here's all these signs. So what's going on? He's saying in this reply about, you know, don't you see the signs? You know how the sky is red, what that means. And, and there's all these signs, and it's clear, but you don't want to see it. Why? Because they were ostensibly asking for a sign of God's power. In reality, what they were doing is they were demanding for a sign that would give evidence of their own control. You see, they were coming and saying, not that we want a miracle, we want our miracle. We want you to do the things that we tell you to do. And, and the thing is, is that they're asking a question that people still ask today. What kind of God do you want? See, in their mind, what they really wanted is they wanted a God that they can control. We want a God that will come, not do the, your miracles, we want to do our miracles. We want you to get rid of the Romans. We want you to put us in charge. We want you to, we want you to respond to our demands. But do you want a God that you can control? Or do you want a God that's all-powerful, all-knowing, who's the creator of the universe, who's all truth, and in that truth confronts us, and who calls us to conform our opinions and our behavior to him and his truth that isn't there to serve us in conforming to what we tell him to do? You see, they didn't just want a miracle, they wanted their miracle. And they're looking at that and, and they're saying, you know, if you don't do this, well, we're not going to believe. If you don't perform for us, if you don't show us that we can control you, we're not going to, what do they want? They didn't want a God, they wanted a genie. They wanted a genie to say, okay, we want to be able to rub your lamp and, and, and you're going to do what we demand and then we'll believe. The problem wasn't lack of evidence. There was lots of evidence. And even for some of us, say, well, we don't get to see those miracles. Well, that's what he said when he talks about the sign of Jonah. In Matthew 12, he uses that same term, and he makes it clear that that sign of Jonah is the sign of the death, burial for three days, and the resurrection. And so that is the ultimate sign, giving the evidence and the proof. And if, if, you, if you're not a believer, and if you say, well, how do I believe? I'd love to spend time going through that and how that is the ultimate evidence of the truthfulness of the claims of Jesus Christ. Most people do not believe, not because they don't see the evidence, 
but because they ignore the evidence, because they don't see the God that they want, the God that they demand. They don't want an all-powerful God who died for them and arose again. They want a genie whom they can control. So now when you look at that, that's the problem. Now we come in the, you know, the next verses and you see this whole interaction going back to the bread and how he ties us together. Verse five, when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing amongst themselves saying, we brought no bread. And Jesus, aware of this said, you have little faith. Why are you discussing amongst yourself the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves and the 5,000 or how many baskets you gathered or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak to you about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then they understood that he did not tell them to be aware of the leaven of the bread, but the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Basically, his point is this. Jesus calls us to represent him to, in a sense, to, to, you know, to do his ministry, but it's in the midst of a hostile world. We are called to represent him in a hostile world. In a sense, we could say he's called us to do something that is bigger than our ability. It's beyond our capacity. He's calling us to say, you know, you see these thousands of people with just your, your few loaves, and, you know, you go reach them. Now, when we look at him talking about beware of the leaven and Pharisees and Sadducees, we say, what is that talking about? And that's what the disciples asked about. And it would be easy to just with false teaching. But again, here's scripture, interpret scripture. And it's right here. It, it tells us right here. What he's talking about here is the, the spreading influence of, of doubt and hostility towards Christ. And so when we look at the passage, the context here, he had just been doing this whole interaction with the Pharisees. They come and they're doubting him and they're questioning and they're trying to drive people away. And Jesus then, right after that, in the immediate context, talks about the leaven of the Pharisees in the context. And, 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 and again, he's just called them, okay, I'm gonna call you out to do this. And after doing this miracle, the feeding of the thousands of people, these religious people come and they start questioning Jesus, doubting him for not doing the signs of their choosing. And, and he wasn't a God under their control. And Jesus' point here is that you always have people that do that. People, these were the, the leaders of the day. These were the cultural influencers of the day. And Jesus is saying, I'm calling you to go out and there will be people in the culture that doubt me, that are hostile to me, and it's a, it's a leaven. It's gonna spread. And not only is it gonna spread, but don't let it affect you. Don't let it be, start to be something where you start to look at it and say, oh, the, it's, it's hopeless, it's lost, and you know, everybody's rejecting the Bible, the Bible and biblical truth. Don't give up, don't give up hope, don't let, it, don't let it infect you is what he's saying. Now, he starts this whole thing, and, and you know, they think it's about that he forgot to pack a meal, and, 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 he, and he basically says, no, that's not it, do you remember? And he goes back to the illustration of the miracles that he had just done. You not, verse 11, how is it that you fail to understand I did not speak about bread? Be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And what he's saying is that the need will always be overwhelming. It's always going to feel like God is calling us into a situation where we're called to feed thousands of people and we just have a couple loaves. And going forward, he's saying, as you represent me, you're gonna go into this world and there's gonna be the spirit of hostility, of negativity, and that the, that the Pharisees showed to, the, you know, to Jesus and it's gonna spread like yeast. Don't get discouraged, don't let it impact you. Now just in case you're thinking, I'm not sure that's what it's saying, let's go to another passage. Okay, in Mark, same story is being told, and look at what he talks about the leaven there. Mark chapter eight, and he cautioned them saying, watch out, 
beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Herod wasn't a spiritual leader. It wasn't false teaching. Herod, in that time, again, he was known for his opposition of Jesus. And he's saying, be aware of the people that oppose you. Be aware of this opposition. Be aware of the sense of being overwhelmed, of giving up. You're going to feel like you never have sufficient supply. Now, why? Because God calls us to, in a sense, to to meet the cultural cultural spiritual hunger. That he calls us into this. We live in a culture that is hungry, that is famished, and we live in a culture that is not only that, where many are opposed, where it can, you all feel overwhelmed? Yeah, that's, that's the whole point. And he immediately, he says, okay, you've got these leaders coming and questioning this, and Jesus turns to his disciples, watch out for people like this. And he's saying, you know, it's not just not having enough to eat. It's saying, you've seen me multiply to, you know, a little bit to feed thousands, and my point is this, I'm going to now call you and represent me. I'm gonna call you to meet the spiritual hunger of the world. It is more than you have to offer Yet don't be overwhelmed by that. You will, you will look at that and you will say, you know, it's, you know, it's an overwhelming call, I have underwhelming supplies, but the task is always far greater than the ability. That's the whole point that Jesus is trying to teach us here, trying to teach them. There are always gonna be people that seem in the position to power of influence, and they, you know, so what we have is, seems totally inadequate. Don't be surprised by the opposition. See, God puts us in places where we need faith. The fact of the matter is that if God gave me a calling and I had all the ability to do it, I wouldn't need faith. I would be self-reliant. I wouldn't seek after him. It's only when God puts me in overwhelming situations that I'm bound to fail if he doesn't show up. Only then do I need to rely on him. And either I can be like the disciples and say, well, let me avoid that because I don't want to be put in a position where I need faith, or I can step up and realize that's normal. Yeah, and I'm a little scared. Am I real? Yep, you know, yeah, I mean, I'm just practically preaching on Sunday morning. And my wife will tell you, I have stomach problems every Sunday morning. Why? Because I'm always into this and saying, this is bigger than me. I'm scared to death of doing this. But I do it and say, okay, I'm going to step out there and God's going to take my couple loaves of fish, loaves and my couple of fish, and I'm going to believe that he's going to multiply it. He calls us to a faithfulness that is driven by faith in God. He calls us to say, okay, I see the calling. And yes, I'm scared about my parenting or my marriage or I'm scared about witnessing to a friend. I'm scared about how do I reach, how do I do ministry? And I think that God wants to use me and I don't know what to do. I don't have all the answers. And well, he also always calls us to something bigger than we are. And then says, okay, now step into it with a faithfulness that's not based on confidence in yourself. No, as it talks about in Corinthians. No, in your weakness you find his strength. He calls the foolish and he calls the weak. He calls the people that don't have what it takes because only when we know that do we come and we rest in his, in his, in his power to multiply. Even one other passage, 1 John, it talks about this. You know this, that the spirit of, uh, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus has, has come into the flesh is from God and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard is come, was coming and is now already in the world. The spirit of the Antichrist, the spirit of ultimate opposition, that's what we face, okay? But here's the hope. Little children, you are from God, and you have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. That's our hope. Yes, it's bigger than we are. We are called in situations where it's called to feed thousands and we only have a couple of loaves and fish. It's, it's spirit of antichrist. But he, if it's me versus him, 
it's bigger than me. I will get discouraged. If I look and remember he that is in me, man, I'm going to have hope because I don't need to have everything. I just need to have my cup of loaves, my cup of fish. And so let me encourage you, first of all, if you're here and you're overwhelmed, if you're overwhelmed by what's happening culturally, I mean, part of it is to say, that's good, but that's also bad. That's good that it's bigger than you, but then remember to look to Christ. I mean, I, I, I will say all the time, I mean, my attitude is determined by which news I'm reading. If I spend a lot of time reading the newspaper, the daily news, I get really discouraged. If I spend more time reading the good news, I get really encouraged. It's a matter of who's in charge. And so understand, it is bigger than we are, but it is not bigger than him. And not only that, don't avoid God's calling. Don't be like the disciples where it's like, we don't even want to ask because we don't know what he would call us to. And yeah, if you ask, he might call you to say, okay, what are you going to do? And that's uncomfortable, but that's a good uncomfortable that teaches us to have faith. And I want to tell you, I, I want to see God work in the miraculous. But we will not see God work in the miraculous until we step out and do things that are bound to fail if God doesn't show up. So when's the last time you did something that's bound to fail if God doesn't show up? That's where God calls us. That God, that's where God calls us to live. He calls us to take what little bit we have. Yes, it's insufficient. Yeah, but just take those couple loaves, those couple fish, and bring it to him and let him multiply it and be amazed at what he does. I look forward to being able to celebrate that even as we look in our own lives that how he does that, that, um, that we realize what does it mean to follow Christ? It means that we bring more of ourselves and, or less of ourselves and more of him. And, and, and the more of him that we find, the more that we find that's truly all we need. And that is it for this week's message. If you have a question about the message, community church, or Jesus Christ, send us a text to 330-400-3242. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life connect. There, you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.